Having the right credentials is an important thing in life. Uh, people spend years of training to get the right kind of credentials, for, particularly for the profession uh, that they're working in. And I like to know that the people giving me advice or telling me things um, have some credibility, have the right credentials to do so. I always find it comforting when I go into the doctor's surgery and I see their degree up on the wall. I mean, I do realise I could have just photoshopped that, but um, I figure they, they should have learnt something from all those years in medical school. A tradesman should be able to provide you with their contractor's licence to show that they're qualified to do the job. Doesn't always mean that they're going to do a good job, but it's a good start. I'm currently trying to teach Jocelyn, um, our eldest daughter, how to drive. And that's an adventure for all of us. Um, I've never done that before, so you could say that the teacher's not particularly competent either. Uh, but if you want to drive a car, we have an expectation that, that you get credentialed. You, you have a licence to be able to, to do that. And think about it, if you're going to shift two tonnes of metal around at speed in close proximity to other humans, it's important that you have the proper training, the right experience to be able to do that. Well, in the section of Matthew's Gospel that we're looking at this morning, the credentials of Jesus are being questioned. The question is being asked about who he is. Um, is he qualified to say the things that he's saying, to do the things that he's doing? How can we know if he is the one who he claims to be? And as we read through Matthew's Gospel up until this point, we've come to expect those sorts of questions from particularly the religious establishment in Israel. But today the question comes from a slightly unusual and unlikely source. Pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 11. Verse 2 of chapter 11, we read this. When John, that is John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, remember, this is John the Baptist, and he and Jesus already have some history. He's the one who baptised Jesus, declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, sometime down the track, John himself was in prison, and he sent his own disciples to, to, to ask Jesus this question. And the question seems to be, have I, been, have I made a mistake? Did I get it wrong? Is there someone else that we should be waiting for? Now, it's possible that John was just asking a kind of leading question, uh, a way of perhaps prompting his own disciples towards faith in Jesus themselves. But it seems more likely that John the Baptist has started to have doubts, that he's become perhaps a little disillusioned and confused about what Jesus is up to. And to be fair to John, the main thing that seems to be following Jesus around at the moment is controversy and opposition. And so John sends his disciples to ask Jesus if there has been some misunderstanding. And look at how Jesus replies to him there in verse 4. Jesus says, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And so Jesus here puts his credentials on the table. He says the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the dead are raised. Who am I, says Jesus? 
Who fits all of those clues? I've always liked watching uh, game shows, uh, and particularly when I was a kid, Sale of the Century was the king of game shows, and it was a trivia question kind of show, if you're not familiar with it. Um, I was a nerd, so I liked that. Uh, and I used to play along at home most nights. And my favourite questions were always the who am I questions. And for those of you that are familiar with Sale of the Century, you know what I'm talking about. Um, the great host, Tony Barber, uh, would give clues about a famous person. He'd sort of leak progressively clues to the contestants. And at first they'd be very obscure, just sort of um, date of birth and um, where they grew up, that kind of thing. And the, the clues would get better and better as he went. And the Contestants could jump in at any point and uh, answer or try and answer. If they got it wrong, they were out. Uh, and sometimes it would happen that they'd get to the very end and two of the contestants were out and there was just this one contestant left and they would get all of the clues and they could wait right until the end. And Tony might say something like, uh, I was the first man to walk on the moon. My first name is Neil. And with a last name beginning with A, I am... And sometimes a parole contestant still didn't know the answer. Well, Jesus here asks John a who am I question. He's asking him to put the pieces together. He's given him these clues, clues that mainly come from the Old Testament and particularly uh, the book of Isaiah, passages like these. In Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. These are just some of the verses that describe and talk about uh, the Saviour, the Messiah that God would send. And so Jesus may not be fitting in with a lot of other people's expectations of what the Messiah should be like, but Jesus says, I fit in very neatly with God's. And so that's why Jesus answers John's disciples the way he does. He wants John and his disciples to understand that, that he is the fulfilment of God's promises, of all of these Old Testament expectations about the Messiah. Now, we're not told uh, how John or his disciples, for that matter, reacted or responded to Jesus' answer. But Jesus takes the opportunity at this point to start to talk to the crowd that's around and he points out to them something that he and John have in common. Go down to verse 18 of chapter 11. Jesus says to the crowd this, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus points out that he and John are both very different characters and had different roles and yet Israel's leaders have rejected them both. John the great and last prophet of God who prepared the way for God's Messiah to come and Jesus the son of God the Messiah himself both of them have been given the cold shoulder by Israel. The miracles weren't enough for them but really the problem wasn't a lack of evidence. The problem was one of the heart. They didn't want to see. They didn't want to hear. Israel had become consumed with its own religious traditions. But for all of their religious zeal, they had in fact drifted a very long way from God. 
And so this is the setting for what happens next when we come to chapter 12, where we see Jesus have a couple of run-ins with the Pharisees. Now, there are these two episodes at the start of chapter 12 that both revolve around the issue of the Sabbath. Uh, we had one of them read for us just before. Um, the first, well, both of them have to do with the, the accusation that Jesus or his disciples are working on the Sabbath and in that way breaking the Sabbath law. It's his disciples who are first accused of this. Um, we read about that uh, incident where they're, they're seen walking through a grain field and as they walk, they, they grab some of the heads of grain, um, they would have just roughly milled them in their hands and they're having, they're having a snack as they wander through the grain field. Um, according to the Pharisees, this is the work of harvesting. And so they say to Jesus, why are you letting your disciples work on the Sabbath? Jesus is clearly frustrated with them and so he takes them to task a little bit and in the process he gives us all a lesson on religion. Now just to be clear, the law actually permitted a hungry person to pick grain uh, as the disciples were. They're not stealing, um, they're, they're allowed to do this. Um, but God had made the Sabbath day a day of rest. They weren't to do, his people weren't to do any work. Um, and so when the Pharisees have a go at the disciples for eating grain in this way on the Sabbath day, some people might have expected Jesus to agree with them and rebuke his disciples. But instead, and it gets a little bit technical, I won't dig into it too deeply, Jesus reminds them about a couple of exceptions to this Sabbath law. He reminds them of a time when King David uh, broke the law by eating bread that had been set aside only for the priest to eat, consecrated bread. And he also reminds them about the fact that the, the priests themselves break the Sabbath law every Sabbath through the work that they do in the temple. There are some people working on the Sabbath day, uh, the priests, the work of the temple goes on. And so Jesus says, well, you're happy with those exceptions, but you're not happy to give my disciples a pass. Jesus wants to point out their inconsistencies in their hypocrisies. In fact, he wants to tell them that they've got it wrong. And this is just another example of the way in which they end up condemning innocent people because of their own religious traditions, not things, in fact, that God has commanded his people to do. And in any case, Jesus reserves the right to decide and to declare what is right and wrong to do on the Sabbath when he says there in verse 8 that he himself is Lord of the Sabbath which I'm sure went down swimmingly with the Pharisees. But the second episode, I think, is even more unsettling. Um, pick it up there in verse 9 of chapter 12. It says, Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So the setting is a synagogue. Jesus goes in there on a Sabbath day and there's a man there with a deformed hand. Now, you almost wonder whether or not the Pharisees have planted this guy there so they can try and catch Jesus out. And they ask Jesus, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Now, of course, they, they care nothing for the man's condition. They don't even 
want to see if Jesus can do something miraculous and impressive. They're just looking for another reason to write him off. And Jesus points out how distorted their view of religion has become. And he calls them out again for their hypocrisy. He says, I know any of you would pull your sheep out of the pit if it fell into it on a Sabbath. You'll allow uh, an animal's life to be saved, but you won't allow me to restore this man to full health. Jesus exposes how their Sabbath rules end up showing more compassion to a beast than to a person. And for Jesus, he sees the man, he has compassion, he has the power, and so he heals him. And then he declares that it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Little wonder Jesus has such harsh criticism for these people. They become slaves to their own religion, their own traditions. And it's such a contrast, isn't it, from the beautiful invitation that Jesus himself issues there at the end of chapter 11, which was also a part of our reading. Go to verse 28 of chapter 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's people have been given a heavy burden by the likes of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These men had sucked all the joy out of following God, worshipping God. They'd loaded people up with rule upon rule upon rule. And their treatment of this crippled man shows you everything you need to know. And even when they see Jesus heal him, when Jesus gives this man back his life, freedom from his affliction, restoration to his community, even the capacity to work, their reaction is to hatch a plot to kill Jesus. They don't want to see who he is. All they see is a Sabbath breaker, a sinner, a glutton, a drunkard, a liar. And Jesus is called all of those things in these two chapters. They've been blinded by their own distorted religion. But what do you see? What do you see when you look at Jesus? What do you think he came to do? I want to go back to something that Jesus said about himself. Um, It was the beginning of our reading. Verse 25 in chapter 11. Jesus explains uh, something quite profound about why he's come. He says, at that time, uh, no, the reading goes, at that time, verse 25, chapter 11, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The author, C.S. Lewis, once described Jesus as a megalomaniac, someone with an inflated sense of power and glory. But he said when it comes to Jesus, it's not an inappropriate term to use because of who he is. 
Jesus claims rather incredible things about himself. He says here that he is the son of God, that he alone has perfect knowledge of God, and that he's the only one who can bring others to truly know God for who he is too. It's a pretty arrogant claim, isn't it? But here is the crux of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus didn't come to institute a new religion. He came to bring true religion, a relationship with God. Jesus came so that you could know God, so that you could know his Father just as he did. And it doesn't happen through, through discipline, through the keeping of rules. It comes through a personal encounter with the living Jesus. So where do you sit with Jesus? Do you see who he is? Do you want to see who he is? To see him for who he claims to be it has to be a life-changing thing, surely. If Jesus is who he says he is, well, that means he has a claim over your life, that he has every right to be Lord. And yet Jesus offers us all that wonderful invitation. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Rest from the burden of religious traditions. Rest from striving to be good enough for God. Rest from trying to find your sense of worth or, or a sense of superiority through comparing yourself to others. With Jesus, there is a burden. There is with any master. But his burden is light. His yoke is easy. Because to be yoked together with Jesus is to be perfectly loved, to be perfectly known, and to be at peace with God. Jesus gives us a warning and a rebuke that all of our hearts need to hear. That religious observance cannot bring you to God. Instead, it will take you down the path of the Pharisees, where you end up condemning what is fundamentally good as wicked, where your own self-righteous religious observance becomes the thing that you've placed your confidence in and the measure that you use to judge not only yourself but others. You might not be inclined to bang on about the Sabbath, say few of us are these days, but you might be placing your confidence in all kinds of other things. And you may be making all kinds of sacrifices, telling other people they need to do the same. In church every week, supporting charities and, and even this church with your money, with your time, serving in lots of different ways. And don't hear me saying I want to discourage you from serving. But you might tell yourself that these are the things that prove your commitment to God. But have you missed what really matters? Religion's attractive in so many ways. It always looks the part. And it makes us feel like we're, we're doing something for God. It might give us a sense of, of humility before God. Maybe through denying yourself things or the discipline of reading God's word and praying every day. There's an impressiveness to that. But those things in themselves can never bring you to a point of knowing God, of peace with God. 
Jesus says, it's, it's just about this. He says, come to me. That's why I was sent. Only I can bring you to know God as I do. Have you gone to God's son and laid yourself at the foot of the cross? Ask for the forgiveness that you need. Confessed him as your own Lord and Saviour. For those of us who already know Jesus, what a delightful thing it is to be reminded of what Jesus offers us and brings us. Rest. Rest from that burden of religion and a release into the, the freedom of a real relationship with God the one who created you with purpose and with love, that Lord whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. That's something to give thanks for. And Ray's going to lead us in that uh, as we pray together. Thanks, Ray.